Barbary Bush and Eight Other Stories for Girls by Susan Coolidge, A Quiet Girl, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Barbary Bush and Eight Other Stories for Girls by Susan Coolidge, A Quiet Girl, Part 1. The steamship Calabria, 36 hours out from New York, was ploughing her way on an April morning some years ago against a headwind and a sea which though subsiding was still decidedly rough and unfriendly. A bright sun had begun to dry the recently scrubbed decks when a passenger, the first visible since Sandy Hook was passed, crawled up the companionway very much as a fly creeps windowward after a cold storm and emerged on the deck. This passenger was a young man, wrapped in a fur-lined coat from whose pockets a pipe case, sundry newspapers and a book protruded. A steward followed, bearing a chair and a rug, which he sat down in an indicated spot, while their owner proceeded to make himself comfortable in an accustomed and leisurely way. He was a well-built, rather handsome fellow, with a full beard of light brown and as much of the English look as can be given by broad shoulders and a pair of cool blue eyes, whose gaze was rather interrogative than kindly. His movements, though deliberate, had nothing of the languor of seasickness about them. In fact, Mr. Elliot Bryce, as a cart tacked to the back of his chair proclaimed him, was no longer seasick. His tax to Neptune, a moderate one, had been paid for the present voyage. He was aware and glad of the fact, and opened his book with the composure of a man who, having weathered more than one first day out, knew what to expect of the Atlantic and his own sensations. For half an hour he remained for half an hour he remained in solitary possession of the deck. Then a yellow gentleman was held upstairs by the steward and laid on a canvas chair in the sunshine. The chalky gentleman with a baby in his arms next followed and stowed himself and his charge in a corner away from the wind. An Englishman whose port wine complexion had faded to a brown cherry tint during recent vicissitudes appeared and in a husky voice ordered soda water and so much brandy measuring with his fingers in an imaginary glass. Two boys crept out and curled up together for a time like a couple of disconsolate puppies, then revived by the air, began to punch and tickle, and finally to chase each other up and down. Plaintive voices and the rattle of a spoon from within the deck cabin suggested the gentler sex in process of consolation, but so far no ladies were visible, and Mr. Bryce, after a calm stare at each newcomer, returned to his book with no increase of interest in his fellow passengers. At last, a lady appeared, a lady's head, that is, for the supporting body was hidden by the hatchway. It was a pretty head with profuse blonde hair, some loose tendrils of which, blowing in the wind, had a charming effect. Delicate features and that pearl and rosy skin, which is the brief endowment of American girlhood at its best. The pearl predominated at the moment, but still the face was fair enough to attract Mr. Bryce's eyes from his book. Presently the girl turned to address someone farther down the stair. Is it wet? asked the invisible person. Not a bit, returned she of the blonde locks. Tell Ma so, Lila. Tell her it's real pleasant and dry, and she'd better come up right away. She'll feel better the minute she does. But tell her to make Pa bring the fur blanket for the wind's right fresh. And Lila, ask Car to make haste. I'll wait for her, here close to the door. The voice was disenchanting, high-pitched, unmodulated, and with the insistence on the terminal G, which is characteristic of rural New England. Elliot Bryce, who was fastidious to voices, as about other things, made no offer of assistance, though the pretty creature came forward dragging after her, 
a tolerably heavy chair when however she stumbled and nearly fell over the outstretched legs of his own he did rise picked up the chair and assisted its owner to regain her footing where shall i put it he demanded with cool courtesy i don't know i'm sure i don't know where's a good place said the pretty girl confusedly another young lady now emerged from the companionway and made her way quietly across the dividing space neither stumbling nor seeming to observe the fixed gaze which met her from mr bryce's round eyes oh car cried the first girl in a tone of relief you are come at last aren't you this gentleman's so good as to fix my seat for me but i don't know where he'd better put it here i think it will be out of the wind said the new arrival in a voice so pleasing to mr bryce's ears that he paid it the tribute of a bow as he moved away he even turned his head for a glance at the speaker who after sitting a friend in the chair had placed herself upon a shawl spread on the deck there was nothing noticeable about her he decided dark hair coiled up under a compact little hat a slight figure in a rough jacket features neither plain nor pretty except a round chin whose firm outline was softened by a delightful dimple but there was an intangible something which taken in connection with manner and accent made elliot bryce say to himself now that is a lady extraordinary isn't ma coming up demanded girl number one she was nearly ready but she felt so ill that she had to lie down again your father was giving her some iced champagne i think she means to try again soon the wind brought the words distinctly to mr bryce's ears and again he wondered at the difference in the two voices cars were soft and vibrant and there was a finish and position of intonation which was full of refinement rare in any circle reflected the listener the other was just the ordinary new england voice neither better nor worse he told himself disgustedly wasn't it horrid all day yesterday and last night i never thought the sea could be so bad how the glasses smashed in the cabin and the vessel tipped and tipped till i thought she grew over i had to hold on by both hands to keep from rolling off the sofa did you ever know anything so awful car it was pretty bad but there were some funny things too a boot and a slipper came in in the middle of the night when you were asleep and danced the oddest little dance round the stateroom and at dinner when it was so very rough i saw a leg of mutton in mid-air flying down the passage between the cabins then the steward came with a fork and pronged away in a corner and when i asked what it was he said he was collecting the potatoes which had been upset and rolled in all directions i laughed till i could hardly hold on dear me how could you i never felt so little like laughing in all my life i was all scared to death and lila she kept shrieking and calling out to pa that it was real mean of him to bring her out in his old sea and make her so sick i told her to shut up and hold her tongue that everyone would hear her but she didn't pay the least attention i do think children are perfectly horrid i told ma just how it would be if you brought lila but she wouldn't believe me see car that is the captain with a gold band around his hat ain't he splendid he looks good-natured how weather-beaten his face is i suppose he lives in high winds most of the time there aren't many passengers up yet everyone's been sick i reckon did you notice that gentleman by the stairs isn't he good-looking he was real polite too and fixed my chair for me car's reply was inaudible but apparently conveyed a warning for the answer was gracious he couldn't hear me do you think well with a giggle if he did there's no harm in saying that a person is good-looking he can stand that i guess i never knew a man yet who couldn't there's ma now i declare 
and she jumped up, throwing aside her rugs, and went forward to meet a tall and pallid lady, elaborately dressed, who emerged from the companionway, supported on one side by a little girl and on the other by a small, anxious-looking man with a bald head and spectacles. The stewardess followed, loaded with wraps and cushions. A solemn hush ensued while the sufferer was duly shawled and tucked into a chair. There, ma, you'll feel better now, I guess, remarked the little man in a depreciating voice. I hope so, was the answer. I think it's quite time something was done to help me. I never should have consented to come if I imagined what it was going to be like. Mrs. Mitchell never had a sick day when she crossed, not one. The sea was like a mill pond, she said, just as smooth as smooth the whole way when she came, emphasizing the words reproachfully. I'm very sorry, I'm sure, said her husband. But I'm not responsible, my dear. You must remember that. I didn't make the Atlantic, and I can't help its being rough when it's a mind to. I didn't say you could, Mr. Frisbee, stonily. But you needn't have gone on assuring me that it was apt to be smooth at this season of the year. I never should have come if you hadn't been so positive about it. However, it's no use talking, and I believe I feel a little better now I've got up here. Do go and sit down somewhere, Mr. Frisbee. It makes me nervous to see you standing about so. Lila, fasten your jacket and tie on your veil. You'll be as black as a nigger before we get to the other side if you go about in the sun like that. There, the wind has taken my rug off already. I never saw anything like it. Tuck it in, Elise. Let me do it. Thank you, Miss Carr, in a more gracious tone. You ain't been sick much, I guess, or you'd show it more. What do you take to ward it off? Oh, I didn't take anything, and I was sick for an hour or two yesterday, Mrs. Frisbee, and didn't get up at all till this morning. An hour or two, that's coming off pretty well, I consider. You've got no cause to complain, I'm sure. I was as sick as death all night, just as sick as I could be. I couldn't speak except to scream to Mr. Frisbee now and then, and I can't think why it should have been so, for I took everything I could hear of to prevent it. I took three of the compound carminative pills before starting, and put on a porous plaster on behind and a mustard paste in front, and ate pickles all the way to Sandy Hook, and two kinds of homeopathy. I don't believe anything does any good, though, when it's as rough as it was yesterday. At this juncture, Mr. Bryce rose and walked away. Who's that? he heard as he went. He's rather stylish looking. The rest of the passengers so far seem pretty common, and Mrs. Frisbee glanced about her with an eye of disfavour. Insufferable people, muttered Mr. Bryce to himself. Bad form all true. Loud, pretentious, ignorant. I wish a law could be passed prohibiting Americans from going abroad till they have passed some sort of competitive examination. It would ruin half the Swiss hotels though, I suppose. And a good thing that would be. Descending to luncheon, he found the places in his immediate neighborhood dotted with cards labeled Frisbee. Presently, the small gentleman and Miss Carr appeared and took the seats next his own. Mr. Bryce fed in studied silence. Miss Carr glanced at him from under her eyelashes but said nothing. Her escort was less abstinent. Hem, he began modestly. May I trouble you for that butter, sir? Then, we've had a rough passage so far. Is it your first experience of an Atlantic voyage, sir? No, you have crossed before? More than once, perhaps? It's our first attempt at anything of the kind, and a pretty bad one for beginners. Have you generally found it as rough as this? Sometimes better, sometimes worse. Passages vary. You can never tell beforehand how it will be. That's just what a friend of ours said to us before we left home. She has crossed four times, and three out of the four, it was smooth. 
Once, she had a storm all the way. Curious, wasn't it? You recollect Mrs. Mitchell describing her experience, Miss Carr, don't you? The young lady bowed without speaking. It's Miss Carr's first voyage, too, went on Mr. Frisbee, but she makes a better sailor than the rest of us. Do you happen to be acquainted with Major Eaton of the United States Army? No. I ask because you resemble him so strongly. Same height exactly, I should say. Same features. Only his hair happens to be red and he has a little cast in one eye. Very slight. You hardly notice it. I thought you must be relations from the likeness. It's singular, isn't it? Very, answered Elliot with disgusted emphasis. Being further irritated by the conviction that Miss Carr was stifling a laugh over her plate, if you've been abroad before, you can perhaps give us some hints as to our future course. We have laid out to stay from one year to fourteen months, seeing all the best that there is to see in England, Scotland, Ireland, Holland, Belgium, France, Switzerland, Germany, and Italy. Miss Elise, my daughter, wants me to throw in Russia too, and Egypt, and the Holy Land. But I don't know about it. It seems a good deal to do within the time. Don't you agree with me? That it's the wiser course to confine yourself to six or eight countries and see them thoroughly. What is your opinion, mister? That you're quite right in not trying to do too much in a short time, replied Elliot briefly, and bolting his last mouthful, he fled from the table. That doesn't appear to be a very affable person, remarked Mr. Frisbee plaintively. I wish I could have arrived at his real opinions on the subject. Oh, here's his card. Bryce. Elliot Bryce is the name, Miss Carr. It's queer, but Judge Sherwood of our place, mother's name was Bryce. I wonder if this gentleman is any connection. I'll ask him. Elliot, who had regained his chair and book, was by no means charmed at the question, but being pressed, was constrained unwillingly to admit that there was a relationship. His grandfather's half-sister, he believed, married somebody named Sherwood, but the connection was a distant one, and he really knew very little about them. But my dear sir, cried Mr. Frisbee radiantly, the connection isn't distant at all. Your great aunt, did I understand you? That makes you and Judge Sherwood second cousins once removed. Half second cousins, did you say? Oh, one never counts such things fractionally. You are quite nearly related, and you must let me shake hands. I'm delighted to meet you. Judge Sherwood is one of my best friends home to Pawtucket. His house and mine are just opposite. I see him almost every day. Frisbee is my name. Richard C. Frisbee. I'm delighted to make your acquaintance. What is it? Who is this gentleman, Mr. Frisbee? demanded his wife from her chair. Mr. Bryce, my dear, a cousin of our good friend Judge Sherwood. Mr. Bryce, make you acquainted with Mrs. Frisbee. Miss Elise, my daughter. Miss Lila. Miss Carr, let me introduce Mr. Bryce. Miss Carr is a friend of my daughter's travelling with us. Mr. Frisbee rubbed his hands excitedly as he achieved this fivefold introduction, while Elliot bowed formally to the four ladies without speaking. I'm sure I'm very glad to know a fellow passenger, said Mrs. Frisbee graciously. It gets to be awful lonesome at sea when you can't converse or do anything. You're lucky in being able to read, Mr. Bryce. Doesn't it make your head swim? Not at all. I declare there's some pleasure in an ocean voyage when one is as well as that. At least you must lend Mr. Bryce those books you brought. They are only novels, ma. I don't believe a gentleman would care about them, but he's very welcome if he does. The pretty face was so pretty that Elliot was betrayed into an answering smile. You're very kind, he said with a softening of tone, 
which emboldened the young lady to ask, May I look at your book? He handed it to her. Hard cities of northern Italy. Oh, ma, see how splendid with pictures all true. What a nice book to have. It tells about the Italian cities, just what we want to know. I'll get it for you in London, said her father, while Mrs. Frisbee majestically added. If it's to be procured, your pa will find it, you may be sure. We never spared any expense on my daughter's education, Mr. Bryce. Four years at Madame Hawker's seminary, eleven hundred. Beside extra, straight along, it came pretty steep on Mr. Frisbee, but I tell him once a girl is educated and married, and it's over. It isn't like boys, always failing and coming back on their fathers and expecting to be started out again in business as good as new. A girl is got rid of once for all. Oh, ma, giggled the daughter, while Mr. Bryce, his sense of antipathy renewed, made another stiff bow and without further speech moved away. He kept at a distance from the party and for the next two days eluded all Mrs. Frisbee's attempt to draw him into conversation. It is difficult, however, without absolute rudeness, to keep on avoiding people in the close neighbourhood of Shipboard. Elliot could make himself inaccessible, but he could not be distinctly rude, and so it came to pass that almost against his will he saw a good deal more than he cared to see of the Frisbee family. He was often as Mrs. Frisbee who took advantage of unguarded moments to force a conversation with him, but now and again he seated himself voluntarily beside Mrs. Frisbee whose beautiful face and a certain girlish candour of manner had for him an attraction only dispelled when she spoke. That voice, that awful voice, he would say to himself as he stalked away after these interviews. I wish American girls could either be taught to speak or born dumb. The younger sister he relegated in his own mind to the chamber of horrors and never spoke to or looked at if it were possible to avoid it. Miss Carr remained the enigma of the family to him. She was curiously different from the others, simpler in dress, quieter in manner, shunning conversation rather than courting it. But there was a delicate little force of personality about her which asserted itself as does a flavour in food, unformulated but distinct. She talked little, but her eyes sometimes said what her lips failed to say. More than once he caught a look which gave him a sense of discomfort, an analytic look, as if in the recesses of a thought, she was taking measurements and weighing him, him, in balances which did not always tip in the direction which his self-love would have indicated. The eyes were grey, not large, but singularly clear and limpid. They looked out from their dark lashes with a frank, untroubled sincerity like a child's, yet they had a compelling power, cool and gentle, which had nothing of the child about it. He had never seen any eyes quite like them. That she was not related to the Frisbee family seemed to him a foregone conclusion. He gathered from chance remarks that she and Alice Frisbee had been at school together, but that was all he gathered, till one day, in a tete-a-tete, more prolonged than usual, with the beauty, further explanation came. You see, said Elise, Carr behaved splendidly, just splendidly when I had typhoid fever at school. It was the middle of the second year, and we were roommates, but I didn't feel to know her much till then. We were such different kinds of girls, you know. It takes something out of the usual to make Carr show what she is. She just did everything, stayed by me and telegraphed Pa, and sat up three nights before they got a nurse. And when Madame Hawker wanted to send me straight out of the house for fear there'd be a scare among the other girls, Carr just locked the door on her and wouldn't let anyone in. 
but the doctor till pa came it saved my life the doctor said for i couldn't possibly have got well if they had moved me that was why i made pa ask her to take this trip with us that and because everything is ten times nicer when she's around her father's a country minister you know and of course his means are not large and i don't suppose car would ever had the chance to come if she hadn't come with us though perhaps the rich aunt that sent her to school might have taken her some time but i wanted her to go with me she's just splendid mr bryce where is mr carr settled mr carr yes miss carr's father didn't you say he was a country minister oh mr walcott you mean carr is just a nickname for caroline you know he's at st johnsbury so she was not even miss carr mr bryce wondered more and more and then wondered at himself for wondering Elliot Bryce rather prided himself upon being an American. Half his time since he graduated from Harvard had been spent in Europe, going over for six months or a year at a time at his fancy and the pursuit of a quasi-literary profession dictated and coming home for winters or summers to look into his affairs and placate the stepmother and older brothers who were inclined to regard his literary career as all bosh another name for idling away his time during his temporary returns he looked at things american from a standpoint distinctly critical he was still under thirty but he liked to think of himself as a cool dispassionate observer a cosmopolite who stood outside of the narrow limits of national prejudice and could analyze and judge his own country with a clear-cut acumen of a denizen from some outside planet mars we will say or better still because still farther off jupiter there was a boyishness in his conscious superiority of attitude of which he was not at all conscious and nothing would have angered him more than to have others so estimate it mr frisby as became a reputable citizen of portucket r i was fiercely patriotic dissertations on the glories of america past present and to come were a chief staple of his conversation mr bryce grew weary of what he was pleased to term perpetual spread eagling and in a moment of irritation expressed a contrary view after all you know he drawled in that british accent which he had cultivated with much assiduity and some success it's not what we think of ourselves so much as what other nations think of as that counts the english have taken a queer fad for americans of late but at the bottom of their hearts they know that we are far behind them in real civilization and no wonder they do look at our civil service look at our administration of affairs look at our ridiculous congress and look at the absurd government of the cities sir sir broke in mr frisby fairly spluttering with indignation you must excuse me for saying so but i think it's mighty poor business for an american to run down his native country and its institutions my admiration for america is a very tempered one i confess in spite of the fact that i was born there remarked mr bryce calmly the words native country do not mean so much to me as to some others perhaps from the fact that i have had the chance to see something else mr frisby's resentment at his speech was too deep for words he marched away down the deck mopping his heated forehead while the pretty elise tossed her head and said coquettishly why mr bryce you ought to be ashamed of yourself you're not a bit patriotic are you no not if patriotism means swallowing your own country whole and thinking everything about her good bad or indifferent absolute perfection began elliot loftily but he stopped as he met carr walcott's grey eyes 
fixed upon him with a look of indignation and sorrowful wonder. Mr. Bryce, she asked, did you ever read Scott's play of the last minstrel? Yes, of course. Oh, I see, blushing a little. I know what you're thinking of. I was thinking of the man, with soul so dead, who never to himself have said, This is my own, my native land. I always think of those lines when I hear people talk as you have been doing. I know you don't half mean it. You couldn't. But it is terrible even to pretend not to have any sympathy for the land to which you belong. That is a sentimental view, if you will pardon me for saying so. Children are stuffed with it in our public schools, I believe. But really, grown persons must be allowed to discriminate, to philosophize. I don't think love of country is sentimental. It's a sentiment. There is a great difference between the two. And I don't see of what use philosophy can be if it teaches us to wrong our higher natures. Miss Walcott, but how dreadfully in earnest you are. This is only a light discussion such as people have on shipboard. You shouldn't take it so seriously. One cannot help being serious about such important things. I'm so sorry for you if you really feel as you say you do. A man without country is like a tree with its roots in the air. He cannot grow. He counts for nothing. Every wind of heaven blows him about. She paused. Her colour stole into her cheeks. I ought not to be so vehement, she said. Don't let's talk any more about it. It makes me too unhappy. Good night. She vanished down the deck. Car is so funny, she always gets stirred up like that when anyone abuses America, said Elise. Good night, Mr. Bryce. Are you glad or sorry that we shall be on land again tomorrow? Now you needn't try to be polite. I know you are glad. He was, and all the more after the recent conversation. It left him in a state of deep inward annoyance. Though what does she know about the matter, he said to himself. A quiet little country girl? brought up apparently on a diet of 4th of July orations. Who would have expected her to blaze out so? By Jove, her eyes fairly burn into me. I never dreamed there was so much fire about her. She actually seemed to pity me. Me? It was with real satisfaction that he exchanged farewells next morning with his fellow passengers and found himself whirling in a first-class compartment through the south of England on his way to Cornwall, with the comfortable assurance that the Frisbee family was safe in Chester. One is not bound to keep up that sort of steamship acquaintance, he reflected. I shall probably never see or hear of them again. But man proposes, and God disposes. Mr. Bryce had by no means done with the Frisbees. It was nearly two months after the Calabria landed her passengers in Liverpool that Mr. Elliot Bryce arrived late one night at Brussels and drove to the rooms which had been reserved from him in the pension corker. He had engaged them on the recommendation of a London acquaintance. It's not a large place, his friend had said, but comfortable and all that. You'll meet chiefly English there. Your countrymen haven't found it out yet, or they have sent up the prices. Sure to do that, you know, wherever they go. You'll find it a deal cheaper than the hotels if you're not above such considerations. Mr. Bryce, who had inherited a certain turn for thrift from a long line of sturdy merchant ancestors, was by no means above such considerations. He also enjoyed the idea of meeting chiefly English. His room struck him as comfortable, and he descended to the second breakfast in a benignant state of mind which received a rude check as he entered the salle to be confronted by a row of familiar faces. They belonged to the Frisbee family, but they wore an air of unwanted dejection, which changed to relief and animation as they recognized him. 
Oh, Mark, cried the pretty Elise, springing up rapturously. It is Mr. Bryce. It really is. How perfectly splendid. We didn't suppose anything so nice would happen in Brussels, did we? Now we shall mind it a bit. Pa, please change seats and let Mr. Bryce sit next car and me. We have such lots to say to him. Who could resist such warmth of welcome and from so fair a creature? Elliot dropped into the chair indicated, with a sense of being overcome by fate. It was not such a bad fate either. Elise was prettier than ever, it seemed to him, and his inexperienced eyes failed to discover that this improvement was in part due to the charming Paris clothes which she had wore. The fish, the fossé filet, and green peas, the curry and cheese and raspberry jam made their slow rounds of the table, while he lent a willing ear to the confidences of his voluble neighbour as to the haps and mishaps which had filled the interval since they parted. Yes, we stayed in England nearly a month, but it rained and rained and rained till we were desperate, and it was so cold that we wore our fur capes all the time. Till we wore them out, then Mark caught an awful influenza, and we got all so discouraged that we thought Europe was awful. But when we got to Paris, it was quite different. Paris was splendid. I liked it the best of any place we have been since we left home. The sun shone all the time. We never stayed in the house at all, and the Louvre was just lovely. I suppose you went there often. Oh yes, nearly every day. Their gloves are ever so much better than their bon marchés, don't you think so? All their things are better, in fact. Oh, such pretty wraps and the loveliest shoes and slippers. It's just a splendid place. You meant the magazine, do you wear them? Yes. What do you suppose I meant? The place where all those old pictures are? Carl used to go there, but the rest of us only went there once. We never could find the time. There was so much to do. And after Paris, where do you go? Oh, we stayed on there as long as we possibly could. But at last, Pa got impatient and said he had come to see Europe and not a lot of shops. And he made us come away. We went to Antwerp first and Bruges and then up to Holland. I did like that. It's such a dear little queer country, all cows and windmills and canals, just like the pictures. And from there we came straight here. We got in late on Saturday evening, and we had such a horrid time. Pa had never thought to telegraph, and all the first-class hotels were full. They couldn't give us rooms anywhere, and we drove about in the rain till we were tired out, and at last in despair, went to one which our driver recommended, and when we waked up the next morning, we found that its name was the Grand Hotel de Ostende and Prince Oscar's swimming baths. Now, Mr. Bryce, just think of it. Us staying at a swimming bath? It must have been a shock, said Elliot, highly diverted. And what did you do? Oh, Ma was fairly wild. She said she never could hold up her head in Pawtucket again if folks found out that she had been at such a place and that nothing could induce her to remain another night. She wouldn't go to church or anything, but just pinned on her bonnet and said Pa must take us away, whether or no. So we looked into Badeka and found this pension mentioned with a star, and they had rooms. So we came here. I don't like it much, though, lowering her voice. Don't you? Why not? Oh, I don't know. It makes me think of boarding school, only it's stricter. There are rules hung up in all the rooms. You mustn't do this, and you must do that, and if you're late to breakfast, you pay a franc. And on Sunday, when Lila and I came in late to dinner, Mrs. Cocker was so disagreeable. We explained that we didn't know that it was an hour earlier on Sundays than on other days, and she said there were the printed regulations and she expected her inmates to take the trouble to read them. 
and the people are so queer-looking, so different from Americans. They hardly ever speak a word to us, and if we sit silent, they talk at us to each other, and say it's so unpleasant having people at table who do not join in the general conversation. It was quite horrid all day yesterday, and the worst is that we have got to stay till Saturday for part of the rooms for a week. It won't be so bad, though, now that you are come. Elliot glanced round the table, and in that glance made a rapid revision of his opinions as to the desirability of an exclusively British society. The company, which was decidedly queer-looking, seemed to him made up of pretty equal parts of half-pay officers, purple with port or sallow of India, their wives, and maiden ladies of an age by no means uncertain, who spotted headdresses of wonderful make stiff with ribbons and spiky flowers mortuary jewellery greystones and whipping willows rimmed pearls locks of hair mounted in jet or gold-framed miniatures they all to a woman wore fuzzy little curls which they waved and wagged vivaciously at the half-pay officers as they refought the whist battles of the night before at times the discussion waxed vehement but major you have forgotten i do assure you you have forgotten you played the ten, you know. Miss Jackson put on her knife, and I trumped with my seven of diamonds. Madame, you have it all mixed up. It was I who played the queen. Miss Jackson threw away her knife on it. You didn't trump to the next hand. Oh, Major Brown, indeed you are mistaken. I appeal to Mrs. Brown. She will remember how it was, I'm sure. Madame, I am never mistaken. My memory is my strong point. And as for my wife, she knows better than to differ with me, I can assure you. But Miss Jackson, Miss Jackson will never go against me, will you, Miss Jackson? Oh, never, surely not, dear Major Brown. I am quite, quite sure you must be right. Right angle angles, flirting with isosceles triangles, quoted Mr. Bryce to himself, and turned to meet an answering flash of fun in the grey eyes of Carl Walcott. You seem amused, he said, smiling. Oh, I am. It's exactly like Dickens. I am so glad we had to come here. Miss Lucatia Tox and Joey Badstock, sir, have suddenly grown real and possible. We should never have met them anywhere else. Who is that stout person opposite Mrs. Cocker? That is Captain Briggs. They say he is a partner in the business. Though no one is supposed to know it, they take turns in praising the food. End of The Quiet Girl, Part 1 Recording by Jade from Linwood